soundness of soul from the inside out. This morning, the topic is what a spirit-sensitive church looks like. What a spirit-sensitive church looks like. The text is the first six verses. We already read them. Come now, you rich, weep and howl. We sang earlier. We sang earlier, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Remember? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Yeah. See, here's people who are straying, wandering in their hearts, but don't feel it. So, so this isn't James just being morbid. This is James saying this, there's something going on in your soul and you're not noticing it. I'll talk more about that in a little bit. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Not yet, but, but coming. Your riches have rotted. Garments are moth-eaten. So you get this picture of stuff that's just sitting, right? Rotting, corroding, not used. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you. Evidence against you. And will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Laid up treasure, and it's the last days. Then it was the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury, self-indulgence, that's the term, self-indulgence and self. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. Help us, Lord Jesus, as we look into this, this tough text Unless in this service we encounter Jesus Christ, we will not be fed because, because you are the bread of life, which means learning about Jesus feeds us, which means listening to Jesus feeds us. And so what everyone in this room needs, from the one behind the pulpit to everyone else, what we all need is, is more of Jesus Christ because that alone feeds so as we work through this text, come Holy Spirit and apply it to all of our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now James started dealing with the danger of falling in love with success, wealth, and power in the text we studied in our last teaching. If you remember chapter 4, the way it ended, let me read it to you, 13 through 17 of chapter 4. Come now, you who say tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we're going into such and such a town. We'll spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? Remember I said last week, the two things every human being needs to know. When you were born and why you were born. 
What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is, it is sin. Now, can you connect the dots between those verses and today's text? The link might not be obvious, but it is real and it's important. What happens when people begin to go through the ordinary affairs of life, travel, business, purchases, accounting, ledgers, profit, loss? What happens when they go through all these things without thinking about God? And I said last week the most dangerous thing about your ordinary life, the most dangerous thing about your ordinary life, is the way it makes you forget about God. Well, what happens, says James, is they start to consider their time their own, and they start to consider their business their own, and they start to consider their wealth their own. They get presumptuous. Boasting in arrogance is what he calls it at the end of chapter 4. But that sin isn't openly obvious and openly wicked because it's the way most people in this world live. And that's why to Christians, the last verse, whoever knows the right thing to do, 17, and fails to do it, that's a sin. Now look at today's text on the same theme. What happens when people think of their time as their own and their business as their own and their workers as their own? Well, what happens is they begin to do uh, whatever they want with those things and with those people. So there are two sins thriving in our 5, 1 to 6 text. Two sins thrive when people forget, chapter 4, that their lives are just a vapor, here for a minute and then gone. There are two sins that thrive when people forget their lives are a vapor. People begin to hoard their wealth, and they begin to mistreat people for gain. James has already said it this way, 3.16, for where selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So every vile practice grows out of selfish ambition. That's where today's text comes in. And also, take notice of that last verse in chapter 4. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. It's it's so important because it it tells us we, we really do have to come to terms with God's word whenever it speaks to us. If I if I hear the right thing to do, and I'm not doing anything bad. But if I hear what I ought to do and I just don't emphasize doing it, James says, Don, that's that's a sin. So what's going to happen here in the next 30 minutes or so? Here we are. We listen to so many things each week. Lectures, discussions, podcasts. Is this time around God's word? Here's what we're doing right now. Is it, is it just one more thing to hear? 
James says God's word makes unique claims on its hearers. It it can't just be ignored because we don't think we're doing anything bad. Whenever it calls our attention to anything at all, it, it makes us immediately accountable. Whoever knows the right thing to do, 417. This is what the Bible is all about. It tells us what's right. That's what we're doing here this morning. We want to know what's right. We want to know what's good. But James cautions us and says, you can't just find out what God has to say the way you open up the National Post to find out what the editor has to say or tune in to the latest website or the latest blog to hear what so-and-so has to say. You can turn those things on and then turn them off, close them up, walk away. You can agree, you can disagree. You hear for a while, then you stop listening, and that's the end of the process. James says that can't happen in the next 30 minutes in this room. We can't go to church like that. We can never read our Bibles like that. We can never bow to pray like that. Every time God's word comes into your heart, it comes, it comes like a subpoena. It comes like a binding summons. It, it comes with accountability attached to it. You can keep it. You can break it. And God places high honor on how we keep his word. God doesn't just give out his word. He tracks what we do with his word. I have five life lessons from today's challenging text. Life lesson number one, and I've changed the wording on this a little bit from what you'll see, but it's the same thought. Life lesson number one, spiritually sensitive people Allow the word of God to override the shallow, common responses to divine correction. That's where these verses are, are tough to deal with. James 5.1, come now you, you rich. And then these verbs, weep. I can, I, this one I have an easier time with. This one I have trouble with. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming on you. This is actually the second time you start to wonder what's going on in James' heart. Because it's the second time he's had the nerve to tell people to weep when they encounter the presence of God. James 4, 9. Be wretched. Do you know how to do that? And mourn. And weep. And let your laughter be turned into mourning. And your joy into gloom. Now, lest you think James is just a tad morbid, he also tells people to rejoice, but even here, he doesn't, he doesn't say what we would expect. Count it all joy, so now he's writing on the bright side. When you meet, only this is a bit of a bummer. When you meet trials of various kinds. So, so we notice something strange here. Read it carefully. Those suffering under trial are brought by the authority of the word to that concept of rejoicing. Okay? 
And those indulging themselves in ease and prosperity are brought under the authority of the word to weep and mourn. And you think, no, 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 James, it's this way. What is going on? Here's what's happening. James calls for the response that is opposite to what circumstances would naturally dictate. Suffering would naturally lead to weeping and mourning. Prosperity would naturally lead to indulgence and pleasure. These, we all know, these are the automatic responses to life. So how do you, how do you know when the Holy Spirit... Remember, what a spirit-sensitive church looks like. That's what we're talking about. So how do, you, how do you know? How can you tell when the Holy Spirit, rather than impulse or habit or emotion, is governing my life? Well, sensitivity to the Holy Spirit and the authority to, of the Word of God will, will make disciples countercultural to the normal patterns of life. The Holy Spirit pushes and crowds the Lordship of Jesus into my life in a way that is culturally and economically distinguishable from the world in which we live. James covers both rejoicing and weeping because if you've been around for a little while, pleasure and pain cover most of the bases of life. Everything seems to be part of one or the other. Which, which is harder, to rejoice in suffering or to weep over self-indulgence? I, I don't know. That's a hard call. But I know James calls us to both. So in our text today, James sounds an alarm to those being smothered in indulgent pleasure in a society where that is so normal that they don't see it anymore. Spiritually sensitive people recognize God's call to responses that don't fit in with the ordinary patterns and habits of the flesh. Spiritually sensitive people see dangers where everyone else sees indulgence, laying up wealth and prosperity. They don't see dangers in that. Spiritually sensitive people see great danger in it. And, and they weep. That's what our text is about, right? They weep as the Holy Spirit exposes my carelessness and my selfishness. Life lesson number two. Spiritually sensitive people know there is a place for weeping and mourning in the Spirit-filled church. The same text, 5.1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming, coming on you. Think of it as an invitation. It is an invitation. Begins with the same two words as the worship song we used to sing. Come, now is the time to worship. Same two words. Come now. Weep and howl. Nobody sings that. 
This isn't a call to worship, at least not the way we've come to think of worship. How many times have you been in any worship gathering in the last five years where the dominant call was, come church, we really need to weep and mourn and feel heartbroken for our unguarded self-indulgence in the body of Christ? Come, let's do this together. All of that raises a question. At least to me, it raises a question. Where where do Christian people learn to feel bad about sins that don't bother them? How does that happen? Where do Christians learn to feel bad about sins that just culturally don't bother anybody. Now, you can just kind of glibly say, well, Pastor Don, the Holy Spirit will convict them. We don't have to do that. Really? Well, then why are there so many Christians, like the ones James apparently addresses, he's writing to a church, who don't feel convicted about what they're doing? How does that happen? A lot of it has to do with the way we do church. I, uh, Rini and I, in August, I attended about five different churches all over the place. Let me tell you what I found. Church services are becoming exactly the same no matter where you go. And I mean exactly the same. Strangely, the ones that are most alike, almost in the same box, are the churches that sort of pride themselves on not being churchy and being kind of a little more contemporary and geared for people who are a little more with it than the old fossils that just... Those are the churches the most alike. Those are the churches the most in the same box. They've all got the same contemporary bands, synth, drums, guitars, maybe a sax. They've all got the same worship team lined up at the front, sometimes three, sometimes four, sometimes six or eight. They've all got the same mood lighting. They've all got dramatic videos to enhance and accompany songs. None do hymns. Usually you can grab a coffee or a cappuccino somewhere in the middle of the gathering, dress as casual in all of them. The sermon is upbeat and light and entertaining, lots of stories, frequently a drama mixed in. For effect, scripture is usually not read, and lights are kept low. Now, except for two of those things, I'll let you guess which two. Except for two of those things, there's nothing wrong with any of those. Trends come and go, even in church. We do some of those things. I like changes that are good changes. So, so this isn't some old-fashioned tirade against contemporary worship. Let me just say it for the record. I like contemporary worship. I prefer the worship of today to the worship I grew up with. I don't know if any of you even remember. We used to sing all these hymns that I, I've reached the land of corn and wine. used to be in the hymn book. We weren't even allowed to drink wine, but <laughs> how many remember doing this in church? 
deep and wide. And then, and then you'd do hmm and hmm. <laughs> what, what were we thinking? I like contemporary worship. That second song we sang this morning that, that Tina led to the second worship course, You Are My Shield, My Strength, My Portion, Deliverer, My Shelter, Strong Tower, My Very Present Help. We never sang any songs that were as good as that when I was growing up. What a great song. But for all of that, there's a problem. Remember the question I asked? How, how do Christians come to feel bad about sins that don't really bother them? Where, where, when churches are all like that, where does James call? Come now. Weep. Howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Where does that call fit into the, 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 the cappuccino blue jeans crowd? How, how does that work in church? My concern is it's getting harder and harder for today's church to Stay sensitive to the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit doesn't want to do something bright and cheery, but wants to do something soul-searching and agonizing. Where does that fit into a church service? Here's a question. When James says, come now, here, here are you people, and it's the last days, and, and here he's talking about, remember the two sins I said, the, 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 the hoarding up of possessions and the abuse of people for gain. And so James, James comes and says, you don't feel the wandering in your heart, prone to wander, Lord. You don't feel it. You need to weep over this. You need to be broken over this. Now, I don't think we always know best when we're being fed in church. That's awkward. I'm not talking about my ministry to you. I'm talking about ministry in any church, okay? So I'm not talking about Don Horbin and Cedarview. I'm talking about anytime someone teaches, preaches, uh, leads a service in a church, a New Testament church. I don't think we always know when we're being fed and when we're not. I think we've come to the conclusion that if I leave church feeling up and encouraged and bright, I'm being fed in that church. And if I leave a church feeling like something has been carved out of my soul and I hurt inside, then I probably... I should look for a different church because I probably wasn't being fed in that church. And, and here's what I want to say. If you always feel bright and bubbly when you leave Cedarview, you probably aren't being fed. You're being entertained. 
but you probably aren't being fed. And James calls these people to recognize when something has gone wrong and, and church is getting structured in such a way that we won't tolerate not feeling good in church. We won't tolerate it. If you feel good all the time in God's presence, I'm sorry, but all that proves to me is you're not listening to him. If you always feel good in God's presence, you probably aren't listening to him. A spirit-sensitive church knows how to greatly rejoice and knows how to weep and mourn deeply. Life lesson number three. God isn't against people being rich. He is against people being self-indulgent. James 5, 2 and 3. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be, look at this word, evidence against you. And will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up Laid up treasure in the last days. Evidence. Last days. Uh, spiritually sensitive people know how to rejoice in what they give more than in what they have. I want to do the offering at the close of the service today. It was just too late to make the change. Spiritually sensitive people rejoice in what they give more than in what they have. They know it's much easier to make money than to steward money. And the proof of that is the, the flesh and blood of verses 2 and 3. These people had accumulated a great deal of wealth but the fact that they were better at making it than giving it was obvious in the way that it was wasting away. Rotted garments. Moth-eaten. Corroded. Corrosion. Laid up. Now, gold and silver don't actually rust like steel. And these rich people weren't dressed in threadbare clothes. James is using words. He's, he's making a point about wasting resources. He's making a point about the way these things aren't eternal. We only have them for a short while. You don't know what's your life. It's a vapor. They're to be used for God's glory, not hoarded, not wasted on self-indulgence. So these people didn't really need all they had. That was obvious by the way they were laying it up in storage or extravagantly spending it on their own desires. They couldn't come up with anything else to do with their wealth. What else are we going to do? I don't know. Your life's a vapor. 
You're going to face God in judgment. Hmm, let's ponder this for a minute. All they knew how to do was make money, not how to use it. Those that are going to serve communion, you can go ahead and start getting ready, okay, at the back. And the rest of you, if you can just kind of keep your attention here. Life lesson number four. Spiritually sensitive people remember God's awareness of the secret parts of their lives. You get this out of chapter 5, verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed the fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. As I was working through this text, believe me, I I was immediately aware of how easy it would be for all of us to think this verse has nothing to do with us. I don't have harvesters working for me. Maybe some of you do. Most of us don't directly sign other people's paychecks. So it would be easy for a lot of us just to think, I, yeah, these are bad, these are bad people, Pastor Don. I, what's that have to do with me? I would submit this verse has something to say to every person in this sanctuary. It has to do with teenagers and parents, teachers, mechanics, single adults, seniors, men, women. So the context, remember... Chapter 1, the beginning, it's written to these 12 scattered tribes, these new Christians, mostly Jewish, driven away from their land and their homes because they had converted to Christ. Some had wealth and some had almost nothing. So in their new surroundings, it would be easy to see who would have the clout and power. The rich quickly became the landowners, the poor worked for them. Now, in an age when there were no unions or labor laws, there was nothing the poor could do if they were victims of injustice, and there were no lines of credit available to them if they weren't paid on time. Those with power knew they could do whatever they wanted to do. That's what those words at the end of verse 6 are all about. He doesn't resist you. Of course not. can't. He has no course of action but just to silently suffer. And here's where the really important point is that we can apply to our lives. There is no external pressure for the rich in James' account to change their behavior. There is no external pressure for the rich to do anything other than what they're doing. Nobody can make them, and nobody can punish them. No one will ever know if they pay their harvesters properly or not, who are they going to tell? They have no recourse anyway. Listening to the Holy Spirit has everything to do with how motivated to repentance and righteousness you are when you know you can get away with not repenting. Did everybody get that? Listening to the Spirit has everything to do with how motivated you are to repentance and righteousness when you know that you 
No one can make you repent, and no one's going to know whether you do or not. It has to do with how hungry you are for the reign of God's will in your life when not one person will ever find out. Listening to the Spirit has to do with remembering God doesn't just hear worship courses. He hears the cry of every mistreated person. He sees the fading glory of every lost opportunity. He sees every perishing soul. He sees every hoarded bank account. That's what that difficult fourth verse is all about. Lastly, number five. Spiritually sensitive people keep the concept of final judgment vibrant and vivid in this temporal, visible world. That's what we're studying in my my, uh, Christian ed class. James 5, 3, and then 5 and 6. This is the last text. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, will eat your flesh like fire. It isn't right now. You've laid up treasure in the last days. There it is again. You have lived on the earth, that's now, in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. That's quite an image. I spent one summer in grade 12 working on the kill floor at Olympic Packers in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Worst summer job I ever had in my entire life. Without a doubt, the worst job. Cattle don't see it coming. They're led along, they eat, they follow the animal in front of them. They probably think all their needs are being met. They have everything they could need. The stun gun right there, slit throat, McDonald's. A whole summer. Boots up to here and a mop where you clean up. Go get a hot dog for lunch. (laughs) So it's not theological brilliance, but I can honestly tell you that that fattening yourselves as in a day of slaughter is a verse I have no trouble seeing vividly in my mind. That's James' picture. It's, more, it's a little more blunt than our user-friendly Christianity finds palatable. But it is a picture of the Holy Spirit placed in sacred Scripture. Spiritually sensitive people don't just blindly indulge. Spiritually sensitive people don't just blindly consume. They relate the timeline of history to all that they do and all that they have, rich or poor, to all that they do and all that they have. Their life is a vapor. Spiritually sensitive people know you can't run a race without thinking about the finish line. That's the difference between jogging and going for a race. And Paul never said Christians are joggers. 
race toward a finish line. My closing advice, especially if you're young and you think you've got miles ahead of you, start right now. Start right now and think about finishing. Everyone in this room, think about finishing. Nothing will keep your life pure like thinking about finishing. Nothing will help you to use all that you have wisely like thinking about finishing. Wasted opportunities and wasted resources are the curse of the church. Every wasted opportunity cries out to God. Don't waste anything. Abundance is not for indulgence. Abundance is for kingdom investment. Your life's a vapor. There are lost souls. When it's all over, much sooner than any of us thinks. The only thing that will matter to you one day Trust me on this. The only thing that will matter to you one day is finishing well. Finishing well. I think about that a lot. I guess that must mean I'm getting old. I told Rainey, I said, you know what? I look forward one day. One of the best moments in my life is going to be if the Lord gives us time, I want to sit across from Rainey, not in a Tim Hortons, but I want to sit across from Rainey in some coffee shop, the two of us, 92 years old, looking to each other's creased up faces, and I want to be able to look at her and say, we made it. That's what I want.